1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that you may lift him up in due time. Sorry, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Our gracious Father, we want to uh, thank you for your goodness to us, uh, your um, strong hand, your arm that uh, cares for us uh, in times of difficulty and distress. We thank you, Father God, that your word speaks clearly into our lives and we ask that as we consider this passage now that um, by your word and spirit that we would be uh, sustained and encouraged to press on as Christians no matter what the circumstances of life uh, we experience. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, 16th century was <coughs> a very exciting time to be a Christian and it was also a very difficult time to be a Christian uh, in Europe. Uh, it was on the 31st of October uh, 1517 that uh, the German um, monk uh, Martin Luther uh, posted his 95 complaints against the church on the uh, church door at Wittenberg castle in Germany and by so doing uh, he started the reformation of the church in Europe. Uh, it was a period of time where the uh, spiritual fog of the church uh, uh, that through that spiritual fog that the gospel nevertheless emerged with um, clarity and was rediscovered and was proclaimed. Uh, in the decades that followed uh, October the 30 31st, 1517, the gospel um, spread throughout um, Germany and surrounding uh, countries, Switzerland and uh, Holland and, and so on, and throughout Europe, and uh, eventually made its way across the Channel to, uh, uh, to, to Britain. And countless men and women... Uh, during that period of history, were released from the bondage uh, that they had been under uh, by the so-called church and 
found the freedom of knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and uh, trusting in him alone for salvation. But it was also a time of uh, great suffering because the church uh, for centuries throughout the medieval period had um, become an institution which was a worldly institution, an institution of uh, great um, political power, uh, great wealth, great prestige, great power over the lives of people in a wrongful manner. And so when people started actually seeing through that and uh, seeing the gospel with clarity, uh, it caused the leaders of the so-called church to react um, by persecuting people, um, persecuting people uh, because they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in a sense, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because, after all, uh, who was it who uh, orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus? Uh, it was the leaders of the, um, the religious leaders of the time that did that uh, when their power uh, was being challenged. Now, of course, uh, this October, uh, we will be celebrating the um, half-millennial uh, anniversary the 500th anniversary of uh, this great period of time, <clears throat> the 500th anniversary of the posting of Martin Luther's 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg Castle. Um, and it's good that we can celebrate that on October the 31st rather than celebrating that pagan um, festivity of Halloween. As the uh, Reformation spread, and it spread... Um, through, uh, through Britain, uh, the time of persecution of Christians in Britain began, which was an awful time of persecution, but because of the time lag, the persecution in Germany had um, subsided somewhat as uh, gospel-centred churches became more established and there were greater freedoms, uh, particularly uh, because of the protection of certain godly princes. However, for these German Christians, uh, whilst they were not undergoing uh, then the suffering that the uh, English and um, uh, the British uh, Christians were going through, nevertheless, the memory of their suffering remained raw for some time. And when you add to that the fact that uh, life in general was tough for people living in Europe in the 16th century... I mean, infant mortality, um, sickness without cure, poverty uh, were much greater than what anything that we experience, uh, then you'd have to say that suffering was a normal part of life. And in fact, it was a, it was a big part of life. They, they knew suffering well, both through the suffering uh, that is common to man and the suffering for being people who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, how did godly Christians reconcile uh, God's grace, what they knew of God's grace, with what they knew of the suffering that they underwent? Uh, in the city of Heidelberg, in present-day Germany, there was an expression of Christian faith which was composed. And <clears throat> uh, it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and congregations would actually uh, read part of the catechism 
uh, every Sunday. A question would be asked and the congregation would read a response to that. And in so doing would be uh, teaching themselves what the Bible teaches about a whole range of important theological matters. I want to read to you parts of how these German Christians would express, express their trust in God in the context of suffering. Have a listen to this. In answer to the question, the question of what do we know about God, um, the congregations would say, and I've abridged this a little bit, uh, would say, in him, that is in God the Father, I trust and doubt not that he will care for me and that even all the troubles which he sends to me in this veil of tears he will turn to my good this as almighty god he can do and as my faithful father he will do health and sickness riches and poverty are not works of chance but these all come from his fatherly hand. Now you'd have to say that these are easy words to say if life is going well for you. But in times of um, trouble, um, this was their conviction. Uh, this was their conviction, uh, not just in good times, but this was their conviction in times of suffering, uh, which for them were very real times of suffering. And so what it does is it, it reveals to us something of the depth of their relationship with God. Um, now, it was almost 1,500 years earlier, almost to the year, 1,500 years earlier, that the Apostle Peter wrote to uh, Christians who were living uh, throughout um, Asia Minor, which is what we would call modern-day uh, Turkey. And uh, these were Christians of... Uh, a multiplicity of different races including some who were Celts and a multiplicity of different uh, religious backgrounds and also um, status in life uh, but uh, they were Christians nevertheless and Christians people who had responded to the gospel and Christians whose neighbors considered them to be weird um, they were weird because uh, they had changed the way that they lived their lives, that they no longer um, participated in pagan worship, they no longer um, participated in sexual immorality and drunken revelry. And so these Christians, they suffered. Uh, they suffered the isolation and the persecution that came from being a minority group who were considered to be different and weird. Um, Peter acknowledges this right up front. If you have a look in 1 Peter, <clears throat> in 1 Peter chapter 6, he acknowledges that they uh, had suffered grief in all kinds of trials. Now, our suffering, <clears throat> your suffering and my suffering, uh, is, is different to theirs, and you'd have to say it's also less than theirs, but nevertheless, our suffering is suffering. Our suffering, the things which we go through, are real. We really do suffer. Christians suffer. Sometimes we suffer socially because we find ourselves uh, on the fringe of um, our social group because of our beliefs in Jesus. 
and the way that we don't want to indulge in a whole lot of stuff that other people indulge in and we can um, be ostracized for that. Uh, we also suffer in the ways that are common to man. Um, just this past week, uh, someone shared with me about a, a dear and godly Christian woman who they knew who had lost her husband and I think her four children in a car crash. Now, I can't, um, you know, I can't wrap my head around that, what that would be like. Christian lady, godly Christian lady. Uh, another couple, uh, very dear friends and godly Christian people, uh, shared with me uh, something about um, their profound uh, sense of grief and, uh, and loss uh, in the um, terrible uh, sickness of, of their child and um, the dreadful impact that that's had on his life and, and on their lives. Um, that's the last few days of me talking with people. Christians suffer. Christians suffer. So the question then is, how can we stay on course as Christians uh, in times of anxiety and times of fear? Well, this is what 1 Peter has been all about. And we see this even in the way that Peter concludes his letter. Can I get you to flip open to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5? And <clears throat> we'll go right to the end, uh, to, to verse 12. Let me read that for you. Uh, he closes his letter by saying, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. Now, let me say that in the world of the first century, it was not uncommon for someone who was writing an important letter to, uh, to, to get somebody else to, um, to write the letter for them, to help them with it. The Apostle Paul does it. You'll sometimes notice at the end of um, Paul's letters when he's writing sort of final greetings he'll say something like I Paul write this greeting in my own hand um, you notice that uh, and the implication being that someone else has written uh, the rest of the letter and here uh, Peter has um, employed Silas or Silvanus as he's sometimes referred to and uh, I take it that uh, uh, Paul would have dictated the letter and Silas has, has, written, uh, has written that down um, notice what, what he says about Silas, though, because <clears throat> he commends Silas, doesn't he? He doesn't commend Silas because of his, um, his charm. He doesn't uh, commend Silas because of his superior letter-writing skills, although he was no doubtedly gifted in that area. What does, he, what does he commend Silas for? What does he say about Silas? He is a faithful brother. That was what was important to Peter. Silas was a faithful brother. That's, in the end, what really counts. Notice also how Peter describes his letter. What does he say about his letter? He says, I've written to you a brief letter. Does it sound like a brief letter to you? Well, it is if you compare it to some other letters. You know, the author to the Hebrews, um, after he's written um, 13 chapters, 
uh, he says, I've just written a short letter to you. And you think, well, spare me the long letter in that case. <laughs> but it's, it's a short letter, it's a brief letter here uh, because of the, the nature of what Peter's written about. There is so much more which uh, Peter could have said. Uh, it is a very compact letter. In fact, uh, including today, this has taken us 11 sermons to unpack it. It's, it's brief, it's short, in the sense that it, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the actual issues that it addresses. But here, Peter kind of sums it up. Um, remember that the Christians who received this letter, as far as we know, had never uh, met Jesus. They had never seen Jesus. They were dependent upon what others said about Jesus. Peter had, though. Um, Peter was an eyewitness to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so, in the face of all the stuff that they're going through, he wants them to know that they've not trusted in some ordinary man. They've not trusted in some human philosophy. Uh, the gospel is not just a myth, it's just not uh, wishful thinking, um, Paul says here that he testifies, he says, I testify that, the, that this is the true grace of God. He testifies that the gospel is true, um, that what they have experienced in their lives is the true grace of God and therefore, because it's based on these facts of which he was an eyewitness, they should stand fast in it. Now, this is very important stuff for us because uh, we may go through times in our lives when we're tempted to, uh, uh, to even um, give up on God, um, to, uh, to walk away from God. But no matter what happens to us, no matter even if our uh, world seems to be falling down around us, collapsing uh, in, in front of us. No matter what happens in life, nothing changes the reality of what Christ has done for us. And so even though um, terrible things might be happening to me, I do not allow my circumstances to dictate my faith. Um, I go back to the gospel and I ask these questions, well, did Christ really die for me? I ask, did Christ really rise from the dead? Because if Christ is risen, then no matter what else happens, nothing changes that reality. And if Christ is risen, then I simply must believe in him and stand fast in the gospel. So Peter says here, I testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. Now, before he closes this brief letter, Peter raises two qualities which will help us uh, to keep on standing in the true grace of, of, of God. Two qualities that will help us stay on track as we navigate through the minefield of life. I just want to talk about those two qualities before we finish up. 
First of all, in verses 5 through to 7, Peter says, be humble. Let me read that for you. Verse 5, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Now, the word there for older is the word for elders, um, presbyteroi. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, so it can be um, be submissive to the elders, which makes sense because he's just talked about um, uh, being godly elders in the passage above. And then he goes on to say, all of you, in fact, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. And you know why? Because he cares for you. How about that? Now, we need humility in two ways. Because uh, firstly, as I've just said, having appealed um, in the verses before to the elders of the church uh, to serve with humility, to serve as good shepherds, as servants interested in the well-being of others, here Peter now instructs the young men of the church to be submissive, to respect the leadership of the elders. Now, it's always hard to know what constitutes being a young man, isn't it? Because it's sort of relative. Just recently, someone was visiting the church, a very gracious elderly gentleman, and he didn't know who I was, but we, were, we got talking to one another before, um, it wasn't after a church service, and he said to me, now tell me about the young minister of this church. <coughs> he really did mean me. <laughs> you see, it's all relative, isn't it? It's all relative. I didn't disagree with him on that one. Now, the issue here is the, the, um, the passions and the zeal of youth. Because, you know, when you're young, you've got lots of bright ideas. You can see what needs to be done. You can see how it should be done. And, and you, you know, it's great to be passionate. And Peter doesn't want to squash the zeal and the passion of youth. I mean, good leaders tap into that and they, and they direct that passion in, in right ways. But it must be matched with one other character. And what that is, of course, humility. Humility. It's the humility that, um, that does not usurp. It's the humility that is actually helpful towards those who have the responsibility of, of leadership. And I think this is really important, um, particularly in times when we're going through tough times as Christians. Because you know yourself, when you're going through a tough time, um, for whatever reason, uh, it is really good to be part of a stable, well-functioning church where you can actually be strengthened by your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Um, and that's, you don't want to be part of a church where the leaders um, have been discouraged because their leadership has been eroded and it's every man for himself and, and it's not actually a healthy, functioning church. It's really good for us when we're suffering to be a part of a good, healthy church. 
which is a good reason to come to church and be part of it when you're suffering and not to exclude yourself. But secondly, <clears throat> Peter says that um, we are all to, and I quote, clothe ourselves with humility. And that's every one of us. It's not just the young men, it's everyone to clothe ourselves with humility. It kind of reminds me of Jesus in the upper room when he clothed himself with a towel as he humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. Now, the, what's the opposite to humility? I think it's pride, isn't it? Pride is the opposite to humility. And one of the things I've noticed in life is that pride is not much help to anyone uh, when they are going through a time of suffering. Um, the proud person has great difficulty understanding why things are not going according to their plan. Um, they tend to blame others and they blame God. I mean, you know, why would God do this to me? Instead, uh, Peter says that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the mighty hand of God refers to God's intervention in human affairs and intervention both in mercy and also in discipline and judgment. God is in control. His hand is at work in all things, the pleasant things and also the difficult things. And in times of trouble, when you know, we might be tempted to, uh, to walk away from God in resentment, uh, there are a couple of things which we ought to remember about God. We ought to remember that God is sovereign. And we ought to remember that in his love, that he sometimes disciplines us, like a father uh, disciplines his children. And he does so for our good, so that we will grow in godliness uh, even when we suffer because of the sin of others, and that happens, uh, God can use that for our good. I imagine this was a lesson which Joseph learnt um, in Exodus, didn't he? Because uh, his brothers had sold him into slavery uh, in Egypt. And imagine that would be a great cause for resentment. But in the end, he was able to say to them, well, what you guys meant for evil, God has used for good. Indeed, God turned that whole situation around. It's hard to see it at the time uh, because our idea of what is good for us and God's idea of what is good for us don't always match. And uh, we, we know, what we do know in verse 7 is that we can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us and in his care... He wants us to grow in godliness. So that's how he works uh, through the difficulties of life. And when we're in the midst of it, it can be pretty difficult to accept. Uh, in fact, that might even be true for you, um, even today. Look back on the cross. Look back to that point in time where the reality and the extent of God's love for you is beyond dispute. Be humble, says Peter. Secondly, in verses 8 to 9, be alert. Let me read those verses. 
Verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, um, on this business of staying alert, uh, Peter was a good negative example of that himself, wasn't he? You remember the Garden of Gethsemane when you know it was Jesus's greatest aisle, greatest time of trial and temptation. Peter was supposed to be praying. What did Peter do? He fell asleep. All right. So he knows what he's talking about here, uh, and so he says, "Be alert. Be alert, because our enemy, the devil, wants to lure you away from Jesus." That's the enemy's plan for you. And sometimes he will be very, very friendly, like in the Garden of Eden. You know, the great lie that says, look, God does not actually have your best interest at heart. Go on, eat the fruit. <laughs> or the, the lie to us that, you know, life would be so much better. Life would be so much more satisfying and fulfilling if you just well you don't have to put god for you know think about yourself for a change <laughs> It'd be so much better here peter likens the devil to a lion like a, a lion in the in the roman arena and so what he's saying there is that um this is not about superficial, sentimental faith. Um, being a Christian is not a hobby that we have. Being a Christian is not, not just a tradition that we're a part of. Being a Christian isn't just something to fill up Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and Friday nights. Being a Christian is about active resistance. Active resistance. That even if we should lose all that we have that we can stare satan down and like job say that uh, the lord gives the lord takes away and even in my loss i'm going to say blessed be the name of the lord and stare satan down stare him down resist the devil and he will flee from you and as we do this, we do so knowing that we do so with the strength that God provides, that we're actually not alone in this. Uh, and he gives two reasons here. Firstly, in verse 9, we're not the only Christians who suffer. Uh, in fact, if you go down to verse 13, see verse 13, it says, when... Peter's giving his final greetings. He says, she who is in Babylon um, sends her greetings to you. Now, that is code for the church in Rome. Um, because like the Jews, when they were suffering in exile in Babylon, which was the centre of world power uh, at that time, the Christians in Rome were suffering as well. In fact, Peter chooses to put that into code um, so as to not 
bring more problems to the Christians in Rome. She who is in Babylon sends her greetings. Um, we don't want other Christians to suffer. We pray that they will not suffer. But sometimes it's actually helpful to know that there are other Christians who are suffering and they're standing firm. Uh, what we're going through is not unusual. And um, uh, we're in the fellowship of others who also suffer. But secondly, take a look at verse 10. And I'm going to read that. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, it's only a short time, friends, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We could spend a whole sermon on that first, but I just want to say that it's like when you're out in the you're caught in a rip. You're being dragged out to sea. You're absolutely helpless. There's nothing that you can do. And the lifesaver on the boat pulls, you know, sticks his hand in your face and says, Grab hold of this. Now what are you going to do? You're going to grab hold of it. No matter what else is going on, no matter the waves crashing around you, you're going to grab hold of that hand, are you not? Are you going to let go? No. And why? Because you know that he's never going to let go of you. That that's the strong arm. That he's there to save you and he is not going to let you go. We're confident that as we grab hold of God with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we stand firm we can be confident that he will never let us go. No matter what else is happening, not even death can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Now, in 1 Peter, we finish up this book now, and in 1 Peter, we've seen how the gospel has impacted the lives of many people. As I said earlier, across um, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, a multitude of different races, including some who were Celts, which I found quite amazing to, to think about, and uh, different um, religious backgrounds and different stations of life, different social status in life. Um, we've read about slaves and masters in 1 Peter, haven't we? Some of the Christians were, um, were slaves. Others were, were masters. This is a great dividing factor in the Roman Empire in that society slaves and masters but they are now because of Christ united as one in the hope that we now share in Jesus so with that in mind I'd just like to finish with a another story from church history this time um, a hundred about 140 years after 1 Peter was written, um, I think it's, it was in Carthage, in, in Africa, it's the Roman Empire, there's a group of Christians, a small group of Christians, and they were a mixture of different kinds of people. Some of them were, were freemen, um, some were slaves, including 
a young uh, female slave named Felicitas. And there was also amongst this small group one noble woman, an upper-class lady. Her family would have owned slaves, a 22-year-old mother named Perpetua. Christians. They had been sentenced to death uh, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it was a festival, something in honour of the em em emperor. Um, <clears throat> there was the arena. There was the crowd of people after a bit of entertainment. Uh, this small group of Christians were to firstly be uh, whipped um, by gladiators. Uh, then they would have wild animals set upon them. Uh, the women uh, had a wild cow set upon them. The men had something, um, bears and lions and so on. And then if that didn't finish them up, they were to be put to the sword. Uh, good Saturday afternoon's entertainment in the Roman Empire. As the two women, Perpetua and Felicitas, entered the arena, they did so hand in hand. A slave and a noble woman. Social distinction dissolved. Divided no more. Now, hand in hand, united in Christ and also gladly united with Christ not only in his resurrection which they looked forward to but also united with Christ in his suffering before the bloodthirsty crowd before they were put to the sword they embraced one another and they gave each other the kiss of love which is exactly where Peter finishes his letter 1 Peter let's pray <clears throat> our gracious father we thank you for your indisputable love for us we thank you that through uh, trials and difficulties, even that which you send upon us, that you're working for our good, uh, that we would be people who, stripped of pride and stripped of idols, uh, would place our trust in you and that we would enjoy forever an eternity around your throne because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for us in times of um, persecution or suffering of various kinds that we would not uh, let go of you, that we would be confident in your strong hand to bring us through. And we have that confidence, Father God, because we know of the great love that you showered upon us on Calvary. Um, how do we know what love is? Well, we know that you sent your son to die for us even though we did not deserve that 
how much more confident can we be that you'll bring us through? So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty.